Welcome to the hashtag blessed version of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah, and it has been a minute. So here's, here's why. And this is also why I'm, I'm the only host today. Byron and I have been moving, and we don't live together or anything. It's just coincidental that he in Arizona and me in Washington have been moving on our own accord at the same time, curiously enough. I've moved my family of six, and I haven't stopped. We actually moved houses the beginning of February and it has not ended. We are just about unpacked from all of our boxes and I think Byron's about to be the same as well. So our two month hiatus from recording podcasts is over and done with and today we have a very exciting topic and panel to just, uh, to share with you today. So so who do I have on the panel today? Who, who do we got today? Amy, Alicia, and Sophie. Ladies, what was yesterday? Anyone want to wanna chime in real quick? What was yesterday? International in- Women's Day. But what? Really, what? For us, every day is International <laughs> Women's Day. <Amen. laughs> so it's a curious topic of conversation because we may be in the minority of faith traditions as far as how we ordain women and women are lead pastors in our, in our uh, congregations. And that's something that I want to talk with you all about because... All of you are at some point in this course towards ordination and you have pastoral licenses. There's a whole lot of fun to discuss with that. And so we thought at the Millennial Pastor Podcast that it's probably important to not just focus on the struggles of young pastors becoming pastors, but to have a retrospective and look at what it's been like for women to become pastors in our denomination. Because from day one, which is what, 1908? Is that day one for the Nazarene Church? On the book, Yeah. yeah. On the books, officially. We've been ordaining women, though, since at least 1908, correct? Correct. Correct. All right, before we get to to that, though, we need to pause and and take inventory of just some cultural nonsense, because that's what we like to do on this hashtag blessed short form version of the show. Let's talk about daylight savings. Alicia, how do you feel about this thing? You know, I like it in the fall. In the spring, it's a little bit difficult. Everybody was late to church. I I had people full on not show up. Oh yeah, but but then in the fall, everyone was there for our morning Sunday school hour, and I was of like, course. "What has happened to you all? You're never here." So, but the real so like the important question for me though: Have you ever lived somewhere where they didn't have daylight savings? Nope. Not not one time. Not not one single time. I'm a fifth generation Californian. Oh snap! Okay, all right. So so I know Sophie's different. Did, Sophie, you lived in a spot where they didn't do the daylight savings, and then you did. How do you feel about daylight savings? Yeah, I didn't miss it when I lived without it. <laughs> I, uh, I lived in Arizona for a few years. The most confusing part is that I had family in Minnesota, and sometime it was part of the year we would be two hours apart, and part of the year we would be one hour apart. And so the trippiness was trying to track where everybody else was in their time zone, but... I did I not miss it. <laughs> Half the time, because I'm in Pacific time, I'm in Washington. My folks are in Arizona. Half the time, we're the same time zone. The other half mm-hmm. the time, we're not. So it's always confusing. I try to call. I was like, oh, it's that time there? Oops, my bad. I forgot. You guys don't do that. I'm, I'm very much not a fan. It frustrates me to no end, especially because, well, I'm going to ask Amy this because she, she's much more tenured in this area. Amy, having kids with daylight savings, isn't it the best? 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Um, especially with my older kids, I feel like by the time they get home from school, there's not much time for a snack and homework before it's dark. So I feel like this way, there's lots of time for all of that. So when they're older, it actually works to your advantage. But when they're like a two-year-old, do they yeah. care about the time change even a little bit? No, and they have no clue that it's only like 5.30. <laughs> but I will say it is bad for in- like little ones if your time is off a little bit. You, they get up earlier or whatever. But Or they just so, they have no concept of the numbers on the screen meaning anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. So how did, how did your, your uh, little one do with that? Sophie, did you... Did you, does he, is he even aware of any of that happening at all? I mean, is he on a sleep schedule that's pretty routine and you have to adjust it? He's fairly routine, but his morning wake times are not the most consistent. So I think the most confusing part is I have like an old school analog clock by my bed so that I don't look at my phone during the night. And I was confused when I woke up in the morning. I couldn't remember <laughs> if it was supposed to be one hour ahead or behind and he was awake and crying and I was like is he really early or are we on track but my clock is off so I think I was the one that ended up being more confused but uh my husband ended up taking him and I slept an extra hour so Get it. We, nice. we balanced out the the negative impacts of daily savings with uh I took a nap that's the perk of having church in the evening there you go <laughs> well and I've heard of churches and this is something I think I'm gonna have to implement next year I've heard of churches that will just, so like my church serve, worship gathering starts at 1045, but on the day of daylight savings spring forward, it would, to offset that, start at 1145. So in practice, it's just pretending like daylight did, savings didn't happen on Sunday and letting you deal with it on Monday. And so that's something that I think we're going to have to do in the future because, man, every spring forward Sunday, our numbers are like cut in half. And people are just so groggy and cranky. It's it's kind of incredible. Have you guys heard of churches doing that? No. No. But no. that's kind of clever. <laughs> that We're going to try it. We're going to see what it's like. We're going to see how – because it's like, why is it Saturday, not Sunday morning? Why does it have to be Sunday morning? People are already upset with Monday. Might as well just pile it on, right? You really have a vendetta. Against daylight <laughs> savings? Dude, yeah, when you grew – when you spent when you spent most of your life in Arizona, yeah, you, mm, you were pretty – you're, you're trained to not like dumb things that will, you're told are dumb because you grew up in Arizona. If <laughs> I, I actually, I really enjoy it because <laughs> only this time, like whatever, is this officially a daylight savings, whatever the spring is. I don't know. Because I don't really love waking up in the morning so much. So I like uh, waking up slowly. So I like it being dark and I can kind of get up without the sun in my face. And then I really enjoy the longer evenings where it doesn't feel like I'm supposed to go to bed at 530. See, I guarantee you, if I did not, I mean, if I knew nothing else, I would have no problems with it, right? It's a, it's but just, my kids are a little bit bigger, so I'm probably biased in that. So. With expectations, though, going into it of being inconvenienced, the first time I experienced daylight savings, I was in college. And I already had a very rough, like, 730 Greek class. So then when it's actually like at 6.30, oh, that was a terrible first experience of daylight savings. Oh, yeah, for real. I had a 7.30 a.m. Spanish class in college, and I'm not sure if it was daylight savings week, but 
being up that early was really rough. Yeah. I, I swear, I think my professor stopped me in the hall and asked me, like, if I was okay. Just because, like, my eyes were red and I was, like, <laughs> not having it that early in the morning. This was also sweet baby Alicia before I drank coffee. So <laughs> we'll, we'll take that into consideration, too. Fair. Fair. So, again, I am incredibly biased because of my upbringing, I would say. Maybe I wouldn't hate daylight savings. My kids will probably be fine with it because it's all they will know. But it's just that's perspective. But, hey, shifting gears, speaking of church and all that jazz, I want to talk a little bit about expectations. We're, we're a faith tradition. We're Nazarene. All of us, um, in some form or another, are part of this denomination that has been ordaining and calling and equipping women for leadership in the church. But I want to get to that ordination process and your, your, uh, your progress in that. Cause I know, I think all three of you are at different points in the journey. So it's really interesting to hear about that, but I'm curious, uh, as a young millennial male pastor, I have a load of, of expectations that I never live up to. But if there was one thing that you feel like is just the expectation for a pastor that's a woman that that you struggle with in this denomination what might that be and let's start with uh let's go with amy first unless you don't have i knew you're gonna say that um okay i haven't really thought this over but i i feel like right now where i am right this minute the expectation would be to um i'm trying to think of how to say it it's just to present myself as viable. Um, mm-hmm. And there's just something about like when a man walks in the room, everybody just like automatically assumes they're capable. And then I have, to, I always feel like I have to prove that I'm capable. Um, and it's not just me, my personality. It's, it's, it is because I think I'm female, but I don't, I don't know if that's put on me or if I put it on myself. Is or it... perhaps a little bit of both. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really interesting if we think about Elizabeth Warren, the Democratic presidential candidate who recently dropped out of the race. But so many of the critiques about her were that she came off as condescending or kind of a know-it-all. Um, mm-hmm. But I bet so much of that came from this pressure to prove that she was a viable, electable competent candidate so it just seems like this constant double bind that women are put in like you're expected to prove exactly like you said amy that you're viable or competent or authoritative but the minute you do that it comes off as i don't know abrasive or whatever what was the question that you bring her up because i i had this like deep like sadness when I heard she dropped out I thought no keep going we need you like yeah I, she I was asked know. that I question just... she was asked some question like her response stuck out I can't remember exactly what she was asked but basically they said uh, or she said well if I say that there isn't sexism then all these women are gonna say are you kidding me but if then I do say there's some sort of sexism in this campaign then I'm gonna be called whiny mm-hmm. I'm gonna be called this I'm gonna mm-hmm. be called that so yeah, I, I do not envy the position of, of leadership, women in leadership because of just what seems to be a stereotype. And I was also curious, Amy, you have church in your home. So there's kind of like a double whammy sometimes, too, because, I mean, do people are, are they able to separate you as pastor versus you as 
just homemaker because it's your home that they're yeah, meeting in? It, I don't want to call anybody out, but I don't think they'll be listening. So <laughs> I won't do that. But I will say there's times when I feel like I'm spoken over I'm just because we tend to have more of a discussion kind of way that we do our services. Um, and sometimes I feel like I, I was talking and I feel like I'm the person that should have the floor, but somehow I'm being looked past or spoken over. And I always think it's because I'm a woman. And I've said it to my husband before. Like, I don't think that this person would have done that to me if I was you. Mm. Mm. If your husband made the meal and you didn't, would that make a difference to some people that come to your your house? Um, I don't think they would care who cooked the food, but I think they might be like, wow, good job, guy, you know? <laughs> and um, if I cooked, they wouldn't. I mean, they might say it tastes good, but I don't think that they would be impressed necessarily. They already have that expectation. Yeah, and I don't think that the people are biased against women i just don't think that they realize the natural tendencies they have to listen to a male voice over a female voice hmm. yeah what, what about you sophie alicia either one of you have an expectation that's particularly frustrating to kind of grapple with in leadership i think to build on what was shared uh not just an expectation to be viable but there's an expectation to be exceptional and Robbie Kanzler has a great blog post that she wrote a while back. Maybe we can link to it about the burden of the exceptional female pastor, especially when being considered for other ministry positions. Uh, there's some sense in which communities are only going to accept a female pastor if she is exceptional. Uh, and so there's a constant burden along the way, especially in this ordination process, as we're going to talk about, to be proving yourself as exceptional. Hmm. Yeah, that you have to be better than everyone else in the room, male or yep. female, that that there is there is this exceptional burden to be um, the best. So is that the same one you share, Alicia, or is there anything else? Um, maybe just also to build on this this idea of the double bind, the standards that women get put in. Um, so I was recently approved for ordination and um, I know very very exciting um and part of the instructions that I received this kind of debrief about like what our liturgy is going to be like what the ceremony is going to be like was some instructions about what to wear yep and men are told wear dark suits and women are like well you could maybe wear a dress or a suit uh, but as long as you can kneel, there's just this like very small window. This like there's this small um, space where women can exist, even just in how we present ourselves, like the clothes we put on our bodies. Like you can't be too trendy, but you can't be too frumpy. You can't be too bright or too loud, but you can't be too boring or you'll fade into the background. You you can't be too tight, but you can't be too loose. Like you can't be too long or it can't be too short. It's like this very small window where women can exist um, that's acceptable or palatable. Um, and and I just, yeah, I find that an interesting a metaphor for all of the other kinds of expectations put on women that there's this very small lane that we have to run in are there any um 
special extra consideration expectations for for someone like you alicia who would be a single female pastor that hasn't been addressed oh gosh i don't even <laughs> i think that needed its own podcast <laughs> so, so may, does that need to be its own post i mean we did talk a little bit about this we have a long form uh interview with all three of you so maybe we did touch back on some of that stuff but anything in particular that's really you know at the forefront of your mind yeah well maybe just to even respond to some of the things that amy was saying just a moment ago about being a homemaker or being a mother being this kind of nurturing space that that's the kind of um expectation that people have from a woman in leadership that they're kind of two images that they have for women in positions of power and that's either like the mother grandmotherly kind of nurturing figure or it's the sort of dominatrix figure <laughs> i don't know if i'm allowed to say that on air. <laughs> But like, like those are the two spaces that women can occupy when it comes to positions of power. And so for somebody like me, who is in a position of authority and wants to be taken seriously, I am not a mother. Um, I mean, I hope people experience me as kind and attentive and encouraging and nurturing in some ways, but I'm not actually a mother. Yeah. Um, and, and so so there are some some ways where people don't even have a category to put someone like me. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, if, if, if I can uh, respond, I have my own interesting connection to this expectation. Um, I'm most of the time a stay at home dad. And so I have kind of the opposite where I have a, a different set of expectations because I pastors of old male pastors of old were just always available. They weren't home very often. They were at the church just working a lot, and they may not have been known as being the most attentive to the needs of their, their families. So I'm sitting at home with babies changing diapers, and sometimes I don't answer the phone right away or text right back, and people get a little upset because they don't understand, wait, why are you doing that? And so you know, I'll, I'll walk around. I just did this two weeks ago, and I, I was not thinking. I will never do this again. But... I went grocery shopping with all four of my children and maybe when they're older, that won't be as big a deal, but they're eight, six, two and nine months old. So it was not the most easy thing in the world. And I kid you not a dozen, a dozen people pulled me aside to say, wow, you have your hands full. Wow. So many kids. Wow. You're brave. Wow. Wow. Like never. And I was just walking in the grocery store feeling like I was in this glass bowl where everyone was just staring at what I was doing because it was such a spectacle. And half the time I just want to say, dudes, I'm a dad. I'm supposed to actually be invested in my children as well. But how often does your wife get that same praise in the grocery store? Oh, never. Yeah. That's the thing. Like if she walks around with all four kids, they won't pay attention. There's like, Oh, cool. Mom. That's nice. And it's just this interesting or, or even worse, they'll roll their eyes are like, how is that mom not in control of all of these Absolutely. children? Absolutely. You know? Like, it's terrible. Absolutely. Because, like, if they're just alive, I win all the praise, right? Or, you know, if I, if I, is the opposite true for if people expect me to be a little more available? Like, I can't believe you're blah, 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 blah. It's just kind of crazy, these gender expectations levied on pastors. Um, obviously, what I deal with is not even remotely close to as difficult as what you guys deal with, but it's connected. I definitely see it as connected. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm off. Do you, do, is there an interesting connection there? Is, you guys think there's some sort of connection there? 
Yeah. I think absolutely. Yeah, I think it shows the ways that our gender biases, the things that are subconscious or unconscious to most of us that we wouldn't outwardly say we think moms should do more of the childcare than the the dads or we think that men are better suited to be pastors than women. There's a lot of subconscious unconscious bias and then it gets played out in the reactions people have to us whether we are parenting or pastoring. Absolutely. Totally. And a common misconception about feminism is that it's just about women and women's concerns. Mm. I mean, the, the, the basic definition of feminism is this fundamental belief that women are people too. (laughs) And so, so the, the movement toward gender equity and gender equality is for holistic human flourishing. And that, that includes single dads or stay-at-home dads or, um, all, like, all sorts of folks who fall into the this, like, backlash of gender stereotypes. It's really interesting to have because I do have guy friends that are what would be perhaps seen as the stereotypical guy who works nine to five and brings home that bacon. They do not know what to do with this. Oh, I can hang out, but I'm going to bring, like, a two-year-old and a nine-month-old. Is that cool? Most of the time, the answer is not yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's that's a fun aside. But hey, but before we go off the rails too much with this expectation thing, I'm curious because expectation ties into what all of us have gone through. We've all gone through an ordination process as well. And so many times these interesting, fun, not so helpful uh, expectations come through the, the light as well. And I know, well, I'll ask you to do this, Alicia, because you're 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 right in the thick of it. What is the ordination process? If you could just give a brief overview, what's the ordination process? And then tell me where you're at, and then I want to hear where the others are at as well. Okay, 30-second recap. You hear a call from God. You discern that you want to pursue vocational ministry in the Church of the Nazarene. You talk to your lead pastor and apply for a local license. That is the way that your local church affirms that you are exploring a call to ministry, you hold your local license for a year, then you apply for a district license with our like regional district organization. That's kind of how the Church of the Nazarene settles. Um, And then once you apply and receive a district license, you then are embarking on um, a course of study. So there's this educational component um, and this experience component where you need to hold a district license for three years consecutively of full-time ministry. So for example, if you had a baby and took an extended maternity leave, you'd have to start your process over and you need three years consecutively of full-time service before you're qualified for ordination alongside that education that you've been working on across those three years. So once you have your years of service and your education complete, then you apply for ordination and the board of ministry conducts some extensive interviews and it's like a vetting process. Um, And then if the board of ministry recommends you to ordination, it's voted on at district assembly and then you're ordained. So you are right at the, you're approved. Yes, I'm approved. And then if the district assembly votes yes in May, then I will be ordained. How many years of your life has been working towards ordination officially? Officially in the Church of the Nazarene, I've been moving toward ordination for um, 
about four and a half years. What about you, Sophie? Where are you at? I am just alongside Alicia. It's a joy to get to be in this process with her. And I was also uh, approved for ordination. And if the assembly votes yes, I'll be ordained in May as well. How many years of your life officially have been documented and counted towards ordination? Yeah, I'm in year seven towards ordination. Yeah. What was your undergraduate then? Was part of your undergraduate for this or did you have to do a course of study through seminary? What, what did you do? So I did study theology and ministry in college alongside a degree in sociology and wasn't intending to move into uh, ordained ministry at the time. I didn't grow up in the Church of the Nazarene. I didn't really um, know or see that as an option. Uh, but as I was volunteering in ministry more and more and taking these theology classes, I just really fell in love with it and especially the work of integrating faith and justice. But I didn't just want to go work for like a nonprofit out in the um, the community. I felt really called to help the church do that work. And so I was working in a local church just as a volunteer for a couple of years. And like Alicia said, I got my local license and my district license and I was living in Southern California. And so as a part of that call, um, I went to seminary and I got my master's of divinity. Uh, but I went and did that in Atlanta and I went to a non-Nazarene institution. So while I had more than the course of study covered, it wasn't until I moved to the NorCal district that my years of official assigned ministry. So the clock starts and that's where the seven years began. That's where the last three years began, but seven years of having my district license and moving through the course of study gotcha. and some of the other. Amy, what about you? Where, where are you at in this whole ordination process? Well, I have three classes left until I'm officially finished with my course of study. And then I have another um, until September 2020 to finish out my three years of service. And so our district assembly isn't until May, so I will have missed my district assembly for this year, plus I wouldn't have finished quite yet. So I'm aiming for May of 2021. How many, how many classes are in the course of study? There's 25 now because they've added the women's ordination course, which I just oh, took, and it's yeah. really pretty good. So, yeah. Yay. So you've done three years so far of I've life invested for this? About three and a half, three and a quarter. So total, if I stay on track, it'll be pretty much right at four years. And that's with me only taking maybe three breaks. And I've taken summers off just because I have children and we tend to go to district camps and stuff like that. But that's pretty much keeping at it even though they give you like 10 years or something like that. For the last three years, correct me if I'm wrong, for the last three years, all of you have been taking either classes or doing district license interviews and keeping up your licenses. Is that correct? Correct. Yes. And I will say that my journey into ministry looked a little different than, even though that's typical, then it looked a little different than Alicia described um, just, and I won't go all into that, but that's just the way it happened. And so 
I didn't get my local license until after we had already kind of planted a church. So I didn't get that until like nine months after, which put me a little behind getting that and then having to wait a whole year to get my district license. And so. So even though we've been ordaining women since day one for over a hundred years, is the process any easier or is it just as difficult as it ever has been, even though we're a denomination that ordains women? What do you guys think? So I think there are some unique challenges that women face in the workplace. This isn't just in ministry. This is across the board, but particularly in the way our process is set up. So this hasn't been my personal experience, and I'm sure Amy and Sophie could speak to this more directly. But in this past year, I've had the incredible like joy and privilege to witness so many friends having children. It's been the great baby boom of 2019. Um But since we require three years of consecutive full-time service without any interruption, a woman who is in this like family planning stage of her life and wants to take, say, six months or a year off from work to be with a new baby means that like wherever you are in the process, you have to start over when you come back to work. So it doesn't matter if if we're welcoming of women, affirming of women, there are some very particular concerns that women face that like that end up as negative consequences in their work life when they have a kid, for example. Sophie, was that a consideration that you had to weigh pretty heavily with your process and having a kid recently? I had to consider what it would mean to step away from my ministry for a season and what that would look like to um, have support uh, for the ministry while I wasn't there. Uh, Thankfully, we had a good maternity leave policy that also afforded Jared some time to step away and censor in ministry together. I know that's a huge uh, blessing and possibly more the outlier than the norm. Um, But that was really important for both of us to have some time away um for our family but all in all you know it's just a few weeks like around the globe that is not um considered a generous maternity leave policy and it just meant that I was stepping away to recover and do some initial bonding but that I was coming back to my job quite um quite quickly I wasn't like Alicia said taking a season off to focus on parenting uh, that worked for me in the season. I wanted to continue working in a ministry and have enough support uh, to figure out what it means to parent with uh, childcare and the support of our community. But it's a, for sure a structural barrier uh, that could hinder a lot of Are women. Are there any other uh, syst- systemic or structural barriers for this ordination process? I've heard stories of of elder versus deacon tracks being suggested. I've heard uh, having to count extra years uh, or having to redo. I mean, there's any numbers. Are there things you guys have, I, I keep saying guys, sorry. How, are there any things <laughs> you have particularly experienced aside from just family development that are things you would like to see addressed or maybe even the, the inverse? Are there things that you are particularly proud of that our denomination does well in supporting women seeking ordination? So something that is is hitting me as I hear the other girls speak, um, and not directly just to those questions that you just asked, but as I hear, like, Alicia talk about her friends having to start over or Sophie considering waiting to have children later, I uh, am coming into the ministry a little bit later in life, but prior to this, I had a 
a career um, in social work and sociology was my degree. And, and I chose to step away from that career to raise my kids. Um, and stepping back into now the workplace 15 years later, nearly feels like, like having to take on a whole new identity. And maybe that's where some of this is stemming from, like having to prove myself and having to show everybody that I actually can step back in. And even though it's a completely different career or, or path, I hate to put the ministry as a career, but a different path, I still feel like, yeah, it wasn't set up right for women to take a step out and then to step back in when they were ready. And I do feel like it's been a little harder for me, even all the, all the way around for education, all the way around to try to prove something. And as you were saying, like, have I had people um, in my congregation? I was thinking that same person I kind of mentioned earlier, poor person. Um, I remember saying once about a staff meeting I was leading and they looked at me funny and said, what staff? And I had to say, like, you know, once upon a time I did work and um, they had no clue. Like, they'd never even asked me and just assumed that I'd been a mom my whole life. And so that's where I feel like expectations, like, just they just assumed I was a woman doing that. Um, And so maybe that plays into people interviewing us and just thinking and, and putting expectations on us as well. Do you get, do you get asked questions about child rearing in, in your interviews? Or is that part of your, your interview process? Do they bring those things up for you, Amy? I personally have not been, my kids are just a little bit older, but I've heard, I have definitely heard other women say that they have been asked about that. And again, we planted our church, so we didn't have to go through a board interview but I would assume I would totally be asked that. And yeah, I've heard horror stories. So I just can imagine. I do think one challenge facing a lot of women in the ordination process is uh, the way that questions are asked. Uh, Overall, there's not a lot of consistency. Every district has some flexibility to move through this process Um, in different ways. There are parameters, but not a lot of specifics. And I've heard a lot of horror stories, especially from women, about the line of questioning they get um, and just grilled about not even theological things. They're not really testing their capabilities or their intelligence, but pushing them on um, with a lot of suspicion or other questions. And then a man walks in the room and the people ask, what is God doing in your life? Tell me about the flourishing of your ministry and just a very unequal set of questions. So I will say um, that NorCal has done a a good job at trying to outline a more consistent set of questions uh, so that people of different genders and backgrounds are being asked really similar things. Yeah. I also think maybe since Sophie and I both serve on the NorCal district, I can say that the NorCal district is really moving toward um, some diversity and representation. My first interview for my district license was not very welcoming as a young single woman. I walked in 
to this sanctuary, there were 12 chairs placed up on the platform. So like three steps above me on the platform in a row. They were all men on the board of ministry. And there were two chairs down on the ground floor, one for the candidate and one for their spouse. So me, young single woman walking into this room was not very welcoming. No. Wow. No. Yeah, no, not not at all. So thank, thankfully, um, a friend and colleague was serving on the board of ministry. And the first words before like anyone even had a chance to welcome me, um, my my friend and colleague who was serving on the board at that time said, we are so sorry. We recognize that the optics are not great. We promise we do have two women who are on the board of ministry. They just couldn't be here today. And um. Anyway, so it was like at least very clear to even people who were on that panel and on the board that this was not how they wanted to approach the process. And since then, the board of ministry and the NorCal district have made some really significant changes to make the process more welcoming, more affirming on like more equal footing and to really step up their representation because that matters a lot. Um And so I'm really grateful to have been a part of like providing constructive feedback that continues to help us grow and be better in that area. But we still have have ways to go. Right. Like if you only have one or two women on a board of 14 or 15, that's like not even close Mm -hmm. to equal representation so that it again like we were talking about earlier puts this burden of exceptionalism on the women who are serving on that board Mm -hmm. right where they 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 can't be afforded a sick day or like they can't miss because if they're not there there are no women present that's just not at all fair i think it Um, also creates like a competition of sorts because you know there's only one or two spots and you have to fight to keep your spot or fight to get a spot and if there was more equal representation it wouldn't feel like that totally totally so let's close with uh let's not give into the if you haven't heard this podcast before we play around with the millennial stereotype sometimes and we we uh we give ourselves grief we we have some fun we're known as being a little cynical or complaining or whatever some people call millennials whiny we just point out all the bad whatever so instead of ending on a note of all the terrible things we're doing, I want each of you to think I'm going to share first just the thing that I've tried to consciously do to address this um, gender bias, the gender um, gap, all the things that the church does that that create the issues of only two women can be on the board of 15. So they have to fight for it. But I'm curious what you guys are doing or things that you see other churches doing or things that you just think are generally noteworthy that are. Um, positive that address this this potential issue that we're facing in this denomination, especially given the fact that there's a whole host of of new young women coming into this fold. So the thing that that I was just going to share real quick is I'm actually, and this wasn't necessarily the plan, but I am completely outnumbered um, on my church board now. I'm, as a pastor, I'm the chair of the board, but I was just counting as you guys were talking, like, oh snap! I honestly. I made it a point when I first got here to try to have half and half, half female, half male on the board. And this election cycle, it just so happened to be that the people that were rotating off in the positions that needed to be voted on totally skewed the board. There's actually only two men on the board now. So two men and then like five females. So that's, that's something that whether it's intentionally like publicized 
in our church, it's very clear to those that come that we value females in leadership to the point that it just kind of happened and we didn't even have to make a big deal about it. Like there has been some intentionality to making sure it's balanced, but now we actually have the opposite issue. I thought that was kind of funny. I wanted to share. That's a good thing that that can even happen in our churches. Great job. Anything else that you guys see as a, a positive things of note to share to, to maybe address these uh, frustrations for women in ministry, women in leadership in our churches, anything that you see the church doing that's good that, that we can end with a positive note on. Well, I think Amy had already mentioned the ways that the, um, the general church has affirmed ordaining women in ministry and so much so that they've added an extra course to our course of study that everyone who's moving through the ordination process has to take this course about foundations of women in ministry, about why the church of the Nazarene affirms women um, so that they're taking this stance of providing education and access and representation, even early on in the licensing process so that the pastors that we are training and affirming and sending out are hopefully all trained in ways to talk about, why we value women in ministry and leadership. And from an educational point of view, they're just understanding the full picture of what our denomination has done and continues to do. Right. And that then the boards are asking questions that are meant to kind of weed out people who don't agree with the Church of the Nazarene stance, because that's some of the that's some of the root of the prejudice that we see that we've affirmed and sent out pastors or their their members in our church communities who then serve on boards where they're conducting a pastoral search and they won't consider a woman as a candidate. And so the general church has said, how do we how do we correct that? Um, it starts with education. It starts with representation. It starts with um, a, like a handful of things. But I, I think adding that course to our course of study is a big step. Anything else? Anything else that's worthy of note that we can celebrate our denomination doing well? Celebrate International Women's Day that we're a day late on? Yeah, I, I would celebrate a couple just personal people in my life that I feel like have been really strong supporters and and they are not young. I mean, I have some um, younger pastors like you, Josiah, who um, support women, but I have several mentors right now working with me and they're in their 60s. So I just feel like that is to be applauded and, and I, I want to give them credit for that because um, – that that's a step in the right direction. We need more men to step up and, and say I'll support women and publicly do it. I think one thing that I've noticed on NorCal um, that I'm especially paying more attention to now that I have a child is how often our district provides free childcare at district events. And that's not something that only benefits women uh, and women in ministry, but also folks like Josiah, who are the primary caretakers um, and shows that if we say we have family values, um, mm -hmm. then we are creating a space where the entire family can participate in the church and that neither parent is excluded from uh, ordination interviews or district assemblies or conferences uh, because of lack of childcare. Absolutely. That's been a big deal. I actually made a fuss about that with my district. And it seems like 
they definitely heard that because I basically said, oh, there's not childcare. I'm, I'm not going to be there. Sorry mm-hmm. about that. And, and they, they have childcare at stuff more often. I'm not sure I, I was the only one. I'm not going to take credit for that. There are other young women who have children who are pastors on the district as well. But those are very simple steps mm-hmm. that I think we should celebrate that people are making. Because especially like what Amy was saying, there are plenty of people from, from generations before ours where it's kind of a bigger stretch to be more flexible in areas like that. It's, it's a whole paradigm shift for them to, to kind of get on board with some of these things. Us create, well, we're going to count you as an honorary millennial, Thank Amy, you. but us crazy millennials. <laughs> yeah. And us sometimes they don't mean to not be on board. They just, it's just the way that it's always been. And sometimes they really do just miss it. And so I do think it's just a matter of saying it, Again and again, I'm not making exceptions for them, but that's why I think it's more important for those of just a a generation or two ahead to just be as loud as they can with, with supporting it so that others will get on board. Well, I am very grateful all three of you took time today to spend a minute on this podcast to share your stories, to be in ministry and to do it in a way that just kind of professes a doctrinal stance that we, we would like to think we take very seriously. And hopefully we continue to take even more seriously. Uh, and I hope that to our listeners, that this is something that, that you'll think more about. You'll look at your own churches, you'll look at your church board, you'll look at your, your pastors. And if there is a time to consider a new pastor because one's retiring, you take more seriously Uh, The fact that there are women out there that we affirm as pastors, that we affirm as leaders in this church, that we are in this together, that as Paul says in the New Testament, we don't play by human labels. We're not Jews, Greeks, slaves, frees, male or female, that we are all one in Christ. And that's where we find our identity. And that's something that we think is a big deal. So until next time, I'm Josiah. I'm the host of this Millennial Pastor podcast, and we are back. You can keep track of our podcasts on Facebook, on Twitter. You can subscribe wherever podcasts are available. You can rate, review, feel free to share. But you can also just stay tuned until the next episode. So until then, I'm your host. And today on the podcast, I was fortunate enough to have with me. Amy, Alicia, and Sophie. So until next time, this has been the hashtag blessed version of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.